This podcast is sponsored by NICE. NICE is committed to bringing advanced science to the art of workforce management. To find out more about NICE's workforce management software, please follow the link in the description of this podcast. Thanks. Welcome to this week's edition of the Contact Centre podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Mitchell, and I'm the Features Editor here at Call Centre Helper. In this episode, we'll be looking at the topic of resource planning advice to boost efficiency and engagement with Doug Casterton, a Senior Workforce Planning Manager. Doug has been Head of Global Planning at a number of high-profile international brands and has learned lots of great lessons along the way, many of which he shares with us during our great conversation. So I always start with the premise that the first rule of forecasting is, is that all forecasting is either wrong or lucky. It's just to what extent is it likely to be wrong. Start talking about the, the impact that workforce management or scheduling practice is having and measuring it. So you can colorate, for example, a change in scheduling practice to engagement changes or absence or attrition. I've even found some counter-type tactics like giving extra breaks. That sounds really counterproductive, but after a prolonged period of time of really being busy, this can help boost efficiency, despite the fact that in the short term, it's actually taking away. So one common best practice for resource planning that I've heard is not just to create one single forecast, but an upper, middle and low level forecast too. So just before we get into some of the more complex stuff about uh, WFM, what do we mean by upper, middle and low level forecasts and how can they help to boost a contact center's efficiency? Sure. I think what you're talking about here is prediction bands, um, which um, are primarily used to represent uncertainty or confidence in a forecast. So we typically use them in workforce management or in my experience, use them in workforce management to look at just how confident you are and also to express that to stakeholders and to to make decisions. So I always start with the premise that the first rule of forecasting is is that all forecasting is either wrong or lucky. It's just to what extent is it likely to be wrong? So things like, for example, the size of the volume that you're forecasting, the individual randomness associated to that particular forecast, and the number of event drivers associated with that all have an impact. Event drivers being, for example, something like, say, an email drop that might generate a propensity to contact. Something as simple as a known email drop is much more likely to be accurate than, say, a customer service type contact that only occurs as a result of some sort of failure demand. And these all generate uncertainty. Prediction bands are really helpful because they, they not only paint the story around how confident you are, i.e. the narrower the band, the more confident you are, but they also help to inform the decision makers on what will happen if worst case or best case scenarios is to happen. Mm. I think that's uh, really interesting, especially that first rule of forecasting, is that all forecasting is wrong. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the one I leave in almost every forecasting conversation is just remember we don't have a crystal ball. There's some beliefs that I think with certain stakeholders that will absolutely believe that they'll they'll pin all their hopes on that one number the reality is it it could be a range of different situations and when you paint that that helps them to to understand that yeah they they perhaps shouldn't be pinpointing on one particular decision it's a variable different outcomes that, that could occur 
Yeah, I think it's really illuminating as well in the fact that maybe we should also be experimenting with different types of forecasting methods, not just kind of the one that we're used to, as well as creating different levels for our forecasts. Is that something that you definitely advocate? Yeah, so because you've had success with one particular model or statistical model or method of forecasting, that doesn't necessarily mean that that particular method or model will be the one that you want to use in the future. So I think this is actually quite a common flaw for forecasters. They hit upon a method, they see that it's providing the accuracy they want, and then they never change it until suddenly something goes completely wrong. Some of the more sophisticated forecasting tools that automate it, they go through continuous model fit situations. So they're, so they're constantly looking at, does this model that we've used in the past still fit? And is it still best to use that one? Or is it something that's now becoming better to use as a result of uh, changing environments or added features in there that weren't factored in before? So yes, is the answer absolutely. You should be constantly looking at your methods still fit for purpose. Yeah, I think that's um, it's a very interesting, I wouldn't say flaw, but it's a very common mistake that a lot of contact centers make. And I think another one that I've definitely heard you speak about before is to improve efficiency in forecasting is to be a mistake is to be 100% focused on getting 100% forecast accuracy. And um, I know you like to use a simple process called forecast value added more instead. What would this involve? Sure. Yeah. So Traditional forecasting performance metrics like, for example, MAPE, they'll, they'll tell you the size of the forecast error, but they won't tell you anything about how efficient you are forecasting, both as uh, your manual inputs, but also the method that you're using. So, so whether your efforts are making that forecast better or worse. So this is where I, I think FEA can add a lot of value, uh, can be really helpful. It's also really simple to understand. So you can use it basically expressing the results of doing something extra in your forecast versus doing nothing. It's a bit like a good comparison would be how a drug trial is conducted, where they're using a placebo to benchmark against the results of the drug trial. Only instead of using that placebo, you're using a comparison against what we refer to as a naive forecast. Basically, a naive forecast can be basically any method, although it's recommended you keep it really simple and it's your, your line in the sand. So it's whenever you're making an improvement, to your forecast, you measure against that naive forecast so that you can see, for example, if in the case of, uh, say, we've got a new product launch or we're, we're changing the types of products, do I add that or do I not add that into my forecast? And you can look at historically the results of accuracy versus the naive forecast that never includes these things, just how much value that's adding. And you often will find situations where that extra two or three hours that you're spending adding in that complicated step in your forecasting process is really only adding marginal value. So therefore, is it worth it? And it really helps you to define where you put your efforts to improve your forecast. Yeah, I think there's so much uh, great stuff in there. It's almost like a benchmarking uh, system for uh, your forecasts. Yeah, Yeah, I think think that's uh, really great. And there's so much more that we could talk about when it comes to forecasting. But I just want to quickly move on to scheduling. And one thing that I've really noticed um, since I've been in the contact center industry is that many contact center planners treat scheduling almost as if it's a game of Tetris (laughs) instead of an opportunity for employee engagement. Is this something that you've also seen and why isn't this maybe not the best approach? I like that uh, Tetris analogy. Yeah, I see that a lot. And not only that, but 
like the whole button pushing type of mentality that often comes with using a WFM system, but not really thinking about the wider human elements of what you're doing. So I, I think it's remarkably easy to look at all the elements of a of an operation, customers even as numbers. However, you can almost go as far as to say that developing an employee strategy, numbers shouldn't even be your primary focus. I've long believed that great customer experience starts actually with great employee engagement. And in a previous organization, they, they really focused on having everything they do at the heart of the employee because they knew that if an employee was really engaged, they would also be providing great customer experience. And that, that really comes true when it comes to workforce management can complement. It's not just in the scheduling strategy, but also across many of the different things that are outcomes that workforce management provide. So if you can imagine a triangle, I like this, this, uh, this visualization, if you can imagine a triangle with three major elements that workforce management should be focusing on, um, in each one of the, the corners or vertex, you have cost, customer, employee, when you're focusing just on schedule efficiency, that reference, that analogy you run around Tetrix, you're really probably just focusing on customer and cost, but you're forgetting completely around employee. And the problem with doing that is that this then ultimately probably will impact your customer outcomes and your cost outcomes when, for example, engagement drops, customer experience also drops, resulting in more failure demand being driven into your contact center. And then purely directly with the employee side of things, you're losing potentially efficiency as a result of people now perhaps being more absent and ultimately leaving the company and, and the cost and customer impact that, that comes with higher turnover in contact centers. So absolutely vital to focus on the triangle rather than on one component of, say, cost or customer. That's a really interesting example, having that triangle. And if you push in any far too far a direction in either way of that triangle something's kind of going to fall apart and i think that's a really great image and as you say kind of the downside of treating scheduling like tetris is that it's humans that you're playing the tetris with and people don't often live their lives in kind of blocks of time that are perfect fit for an efficient contact center schedule and that's where the kind of scheduled satisfaction comes in but how do you think we can kind of change our organizational mindsets that we can we in WFM can get the support to really make employee engagement a big part of our WFM strategy? Start measuring this end to end. So, for example, on engagement surveys, these type of things. Start talking about the the impact that workforce management or scheduling practice is having, and measuring it. So you can collaborate, for example, a change in scheduling practice to engagement changes or absence or attrition. We know these things are definitely connected, but we don't do enough work, I think, to actually measure it analytically. But the data is there. So once you start to paint the picture of this type of scheduling practice and engagement results in reduced absence and attrition, and you can put it back to, to that the ultimate figure that most businesses will be caring about, hopefully, which is cost, it starts to become really real, but it's connecting the dots that probably workforce management don't do enough of because we go directly to the cost bit without thinking about the human considerations that influence costs and customer. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And I really kind of, I'm really fixating quite a lot on this kind of um, idea that resource planning is a really big opportunity for employee engagement because I think it's something we're seeing more and more. So should we maybe be designing shifts to better suit people's lifestyles or 
at least adding value to the, those less desirable shift patterns? In my experience, I guess, from doing this for uh, nearly 17 years, I constantly come across the most common applied scheduling practice being what I refer to as a quality scheduling. So this is a type of practice that assumes that by treating everyone the same, we're treating everyone fair, even when considering the fact that each employee will have a different life outside of work. So lifestyle scheduling for me is about treating everyone as an individual. It's, it's equity scheduling versus that equality that I mentioned earlier. Appreciation that each individual preference matters and that every preference is likely to be different from the individual to individual. Often you'll see, for example, practices that are applied across, say, for parents. But who's to say that one individual preference, say, that I'm really keen golfer, is less important than somebody that has a, another individual preference. And I think this is where lifestyle scheduling can really add value, both ticking off the optimization benefit, because you can design your individual schedules to match your business needs, but, but, it, but you can also uh, tailor in the preferences of the individual rather than, like I say, this equality type approach that usually ends up making the majority of people unhappy and only the minority which probably didn't care that much in the first place, not that much difference in opinion. Yeah, I think it, that's very interesting. You're talking a lot about kind of the, the individual needs a lot. And I think this also has a big significance for your recruitment strategy as well. Because I knew a planner once um, who targeted social care professions when recruiting for a night shift. When he did, he achieved a 0% attrition rate because they were used to kind of that lifestyle. And they had the necessary social skills that would make a really good contact center advisor. So I think having ideas like that is, it's it's very interesting topic. But again, kind of there's so much that we could cover <laughs> quickly on the... <laughs> I'll just say one more thing on it. There's two things that you do need to consider when if you're going down the lifestyle route. Don't go totally down it because if you do, you could potentially run into some some problems later down the line. For example... If you have completely individual schedules, one, it's hard to maintain. And secondly, that if you ever get into a situation where you're not backfilling your your attrition, you could potentially create gaps in your schedule cover. So that have look at it holistically and have strategies to, to fill different needs. The second observation that I'd make is that you by asking your people what they would like to work, you'll often find people out there that have lifestyles outside of work that are actually wanting to work what is typically classed as the unpopular shifts. So a prime example is students. They often will be quite happy to work on the weekends and the evenings because they're in class during the daytime. And this then helps you to tailor your approach, perhaps reducing the number of unsociable or unpopular shift patterns for the majority of people. So it's, it's another added value of uh, lifestyle. And it's worth engaging your people to really find out what they are willing and want to work you'll be you'll be surprised by the results yeah it's very interesting because when i went into a contact center recently kind of they were they were asking um advisors who were all worked a fixed shift of five days a week and they gave them loads of options for which shift they would most like nearly most of them said a four day a week but working the same hours as they would the 37 and a half hour so just getting in touch of what your employees actually want is a very interesting uh, thing. But quickly now, um, moving on, I think it's very important that we talk a little bit about uh, intraday management as well, which is a very important part of a uh, resource planner's job or on-the-spot resource planning, as uh, some people say. So what pieces of advice would you give somebody in terms of boosting efficiency when the contact center gets really busy? 
Yeah, so personally, I'm always slightly cautious about short-term tactics that will boost efficiency because they can sometimes do more harm in the long run. So, for example, when you push people on a particular tactic, like, for example, one might be that you realign your routing so that you're putting the types of contacts that you know that certain segments of your population are quicker on. However, the long-term harm of doing that would be that whilst they become and continue to be proficient, nobody else learns. So you isolate segments of your learning within your population of contact owner. And in fact, I've even found some counter-type tactics like giving extra breaks. That sounds really counterproductive, but after a prolonged period of time of really being busy, this can help boost efficiency, despite the fact that in the short term, it's actually taking away. So the best advice that I can give to any real-time team is really to plan and engage ahead of time so that instead of seeking those solutions in the moment, you're enacting solutions that are pre-agreed. Time and time again, I've come across real-time teams that they're really good at reacting in the moment, but they're having to spend a huge amount of their time and resource seeking permission to do those actions or to to engage and understand what what they should be doing in this moment. So if you can outline a set of protocols that the real-time team and the operation will use as that checklist for real-time and operation action or ensuring that you're following those pre-agreed actions, and then also have a clear and concise messages to maintain that consistent approach, raise awareness of those agreed uh, remedial actions, but more importantly, also ensuring that everybody is really clear on what their role or responsibility is. This type of initiative for me is, is the one that really creates that next level for real time. And it builds confidence and removes surprises, which I think the two pieces of feedback that I'll, that I'll get from every business that I've worked in from, from stakeholders is how do we feel confident that the real time team are actually doing something? And, and secondly, what are they doing? So if you've got that pre-agreed and communicated up front, there is no surprises and there is no ambiguity around what the real-time team are doing. And your speed of action is quicker because you don't have to seek permission. Yeah, I think it's a really good point to get kind of those. I've heard them described as standard operating procedures. Mm, play in place and service yeah. loop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think your point, especially around making sure everybody knows what their role is within that, was very, was um, was very critical as well. And this was actually a question that I asked to John Casey, who I know you know well in a previous um, podcast. And one thing that he really advised doing alongside that was avoiding knee-jerk decisions. Do you think this is a key skill for any WFM manager? Yes, across the whole piece, and and actually, in an emergency situation, sometimes the worst thing you can do is knee-jerk. So. There'll be a lot of pressure on, say, the real-time team to just do something. But in reality, that could do more harm than good, the first point in case that are made. Sometimes with these short-term tactical benefits, by the time you've enacted them, one, the incident is over, and two, you've ended up doing more harm than good. Less knee-jerk, more pre-thought is, for me, the way to go. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point because a good lesson to everyone that kind of a good planner will always take their time and step back and understand what has happened to their plan, particularly even after the real time has happened. So and do you think this kind of ability to look back after kind of a real time situation and think to yourself, what could I have done differently to improve efficiency and engagement within my schedule? Do you think that the best quality in a planner is that desire to keep learning and keep improving their resource plans. 
Yeah. I'm often asked, what do I look for when I'm hiring uh, somebody in workforce planning or in real time? And I think technical skills can be taught, but the behaviors and traits of an individual are much harder to learn. So I always look for somebody that has tenacity, because I think it's, it can be a tough job, but more importantly, curiosity. So continual learning is driven by somebody's curiosity. You, you can say and build a development plan and you can send somebody on a course, but if they're not curious, the likelihood is one, they won't absorb much of it and two, they won't apply it. So curiosity drives learning. It also drives to look into particular data sets or situations that are occurring and, and, and explore them deeper. And without that trait, for me, you're always up against driving somebody to become better at their job. For me, curiosity is the, the thing that drives all the right traits when it comes to a really good analyst. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really nice point again. And I just, the final question has just come to my mind. The last week I was at a CCMA event and I was at a table of resource planners and contact centers. And they were uh, telling me that the kind of one of the biggest problems that they have is that staff don't understand just the impact that being a little bit late or just having one extra day off can have on the entire contact center schedule. And I know there's a rule within WFM called the power of one. I don't know if you could just uh, quickly explain this to everybody and maybe suggest a, a great way to teach the power of one rule within the contact center. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I've got great ways of, of uh, the, when you hear about my normal tactic, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the power of one has been around probably as long as contact centers, but it's, it's, it's not always embedded in, in the culture. The idea is very, very simple, that your actions as an individual can have major impacts on the customer ultimately and how long they queue so when you when you think it's just one minute but you multiply it say across the population of say a thousand agents that what if every single person is taking just that one minute that's a hell of a lot of amount of time that's been taken away from serving the customer so how do you get that across when somebody's for example oh, it's just one minute this is where you can have some sort of fun exercises and they've evolved over time mainly because health and safety have come in and said some of these uh, exercises are not particularly good for the welfare of our uh, agents. I had a prime example of one where uh, we were lifting uh, an agent up with a mat and we would take one person away until finally the uh, the person fell to the floor. Of course, uh, when they hurt their back, that was considered not to be a wise move going forward. More recently, I've, I've used balloons. So we have a, say, 10 agents in a room and 10 balloons. Their job is just to juggle that one balloon at a time until, and then you slowly take that one person away and you can see then the impacts of how difficult it is, even just with one person coming out, how many balloons are dropped. Each of these balloons then is representing a lost customer interaction. We've even, by the way, had some problems with, with health and safety on the balloons, but <laughs> we'll find something, we'll, we'll find something. But the concept is really to sort of demonstrate just how powerful one person and and a, or a collection of people moving in the same direction can have at the same time. And that is the nature of workforce planning is us to ensure that we've got the right number of people, the right time, with the right skill. And the power one is the operation side of how they play into that in, in order to deliver that to plan. Mm. 
I think that's a really good uh, message to end on. Maybe not the mat example. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, will have some. Yeah, I'll myself that, but... one. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the balloon one was really great, and I think it's a really kind of a great uh, way to end this podcast. And we've discussed lots of different areas, but lots of really uh, great points that we've talked about. Just one quick final thing question for you is: just where can our listeners go to hear more from you? So I have a blog that I've been doing for the last eight years, which I think is good readership. It's wfmmanagement.com. And I also post a lot of on, on LinkedIn as well. I'm really always very happy to connect to individuals that have an interest in workforce management on LinkedIn. Happy to answer questions directly. And lastly, we also have a, a Telegram group, uh, which is a community-driven group for workforce management professionals now and close to 800 people in there and with constant back and forward questions and you'll find me contributing to to that group a lot as well excellent stuff i think also on your linkedin just to give it a quick little plug you used to if you go back through kind of doug's activity you'd find a hundred really great tips ah, for wfm true. that you've done before which we took on uh, onto call center helper as well we uh, stole them with your permission you took it to another <laughs> level no you took it to another level so, yeah i love how you interlinked other parts and content that you had. I thought that was, that was really neat. Yeah. Mm. Definitely recommend that for, for all your, your readers and, and uh, listeners. So it's a hundred tips in all, and it's, um, it's nearly all Doug's insight and it's really great stuff. So, but anyway, for now, thank you for joining us today, Doug, lots of great topics discussed. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode. Thank you to Doug Casterton for sharing so many great insights. We'll be back next week with another excellent expert guest from within the contact center industry. So stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by NICE. NICE is committed to bringing advanced science to the art of workforce management. NICE are able to do so by leveraging machine learning based simulation to model the many variables used when scheduling agents. This inclusion for agent availability and preferences helps agents to feel like their work-life balance is valued and they will likely have a much higher engagement level. Combined together, this ensures the center is staffed at the right level. To find out more about NICE's workforce management software, please follow the link in the description of this podcast. Thanks. The Contact Center podcast is produced by Call Center Helper, the leading contact center magazine. You can subscribe to our podcasts or give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also access our entire range of podcasts through the Call Center Helper website by visiting callcenterhelper.com forward slash podcasts.